Hello. This is the Transformation of European Politics series. My name is Tiger Bushadi, and I am a political scientist at the University of Zurich. In this podcast series, I talk to other political scientists about a publication of theirs that can help us better understand the transformation of European politics in the past 20 years. We link these academic works to broader debates within political science, but also discuss how they relate to current political developments. In this episode, I talk to Zilia Häusermann, who is Professor of Swiss Politics and Comparative Political Economy at the University of Zurich. We talk about the book, The Politics of Advanced Capitalism, which is co-edited with Pablo Bermendi, Hans-Peter Krisi, and Herbert Kitschelt. In the introduction of this edited volume, the four authors provide an analytic framework of how the transformations of post-industrial societies, such as globalization, automation, or changing gender roles, have affected political outcomes. In order to understand the politics of advanced capitalist societies, so the authors argue, it is crucial to take into account the preferences of different socioeconomic groups in society, such as the petty bourgeoisie or sociocultural professionals. In this changing environment, then, political parties can forge different alliances over these groups, and these alliances in turn are essential to understand political outcomes. The conversation provides an insight into many developments in European politics in the past 30 years, such as changing support coalitions for social democratic or conservative parties, or changes in welfare and social policies that we've witnessed. For more information about Zelia and her research, you can follow her on Twitter under at Zelia Häusermann or visit her website, ziliahäusermann.org. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Hello, Zelia. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Tariq. Thanks today, for inviting me. Today we're going to talk about um, the book, The Politics of Advanced Capitalism, that you co-edited with Hans-Peter Krisi, Herbert Kitschelt, and Pablo Beramendi. And we're focusing on the introduction of the book in which you outline a framework to better understand how socioeconomic transformations of post-industrial societies and the knowledge economy have affected changes in politics and policies. Before we talk about the book in more detail, my first question would just be, what was the motivation behind the book, behind the project? Mm -hmm. Thank you. So um, actually, this uh, book uh, started uh, quite early on. It started in 2009. And that was um, about 10 years after the publication of a predecessor book, um, in which also Hans-Peter Kriesi and Herbert Kitschert were um, involved, which is called Continuity and Change in Contemporary Capitalism. And some of the people listening to this podcast may be familiar with the book. It was a book that also tried to link um, comparative political economy, some international political economy, and uh, comparative politics, or the study of electoral uh, comparative politics mostly. And uh, Herbert Kitschelt, especially in 2009, thought it would be a good time to reassess the conclusions they had come to and to um, kind of respond to some of the theoretical developments that had taken place between 1999 and 2009, especially in comparative political economy. And I mean, the one major theoretical change that had taken place was the publication of the Varieties of Capitalism volume, also of Pearson's New Politics of the Welfare State uh, work or research agenda, and uh, some uh, work by Peter Mayer, for instance, or also um, uh, Streeck's work on changing capitalism. And all these um, major publications that had uh, found a lot of resonance in the scholarly uh, public and literature, they all um, more or less argued that electoral politics was dead or converging or becoming more, or more and more irrelevant. And I think that was the main motivation to write the book. To show that electoral competition still matters. Yes, to, um, to find a way to conceptualize electoral politics around distributive policy, social and economic policy, in a way that did justice to the transformations that electoral politics had undergone uh, over the two decades before we actually wrote the book. Because um, the, the 
the concept of um, party competition and electoral uh, politics that um, that still prevailed in these publications that I uh, just mentioned, if if any, uh, one has to say, was a uh, was a kind of unidimensional competition between left and right, mainstream left, mainstream right parties. And as soon as uh, these authors saw mainstream left, mainstream right parties converge in some of the countries, uh, such as Germany, for instance, but not in others, but Germany was always an important case, um, they concluded that um, Overall, and I caricaturize here a bit, of course, that electoral politics was converging, um, that uh, competition between economically left and right positions were not relevant anymore, etc. And of course, uh, no surprise, um, Hans-Peter Kriesi and Herbert Kitschel, who had uh, worked on new left parties in the 80s uh, first and then new right parties in the 90s um, second, they were uh, well aware that electoral politics was uh, far from being dead and was in a process of deep restructuring, which was going to last and become even more important over time. And they saw that um, kind of a, a volume on electoral politics and CPE um, in in the, the new century, if you want, had to incorporate these parties that were so far largely ignored in the political economy literature. Um, and, and maybe um, uh, to add to that, I mean, the, uh, it's important to see that the book was written, was thought out and written before 2016. So in 2016, Brexit happened and Trump was elected. And th these were two events which then kind of changed the perspective on electoral politics, more or less across political science. And of course, after that, kind of incorporating the new uh, the, or the, the new right mobilization, also to some extent its counterpart, the, the, the culturalist left uh, uh, mobilization has become much more widespread also in CPE and uh, in comparative politics anyways. But before that, it's, it's, and it's kind of hard to imagine now in retrospect, but before that in CPE and IPE, um, new right parties and kind of new left parties were more or less absent. And we'll definitely talk more about how these parties have changed and about their impact. To start out, maybe I think it's fair to describe the book, the, the whole volume, but also especially the introduction as really focusing on change, on things that have changed in the past 40, 50 years, maybe even. Um, and on the one hand, you have these socioeconomic transformations that now affect how political agents can work. Can you tell me a little more about what the main transformations are, the most important ones to understand politics today? Yes, um, it, it's true that the book has a very, you can say, structuralist approach. Um, it also shows in the different parts of the book, the part on structural developments takes uh, a, a lot of space and a lot of importance in the argumentation and in the book. Um, because we thought that this is basically where the main changes lie and it's also where you can see the main political challenges that then emerge for uh, the actors in the electoral arena lie and, and you can see how they are going to develop. And the main change I think that we focused on in this book, of course, was um, technological change, um, deindustrialization, post-industrialization. Today, we talk mostly about automation, digitalization, but of course, uh, I mean, it's kind of a similar, it's a continuum in this structural economic change. Um, meaning the transition from an industrial uh, society or industrial production structure to post-industrial economies. And um, this, of course, was also response to um, some very important um, CPE theories like varieties of capitalism, which very much were still centered around manufacturing uh, industries as kind of the analytical focal point of the whole theorizing. So we wanted to show how um, the change to a post-industrial economy changed social structure deeply um, in terms of classes, in terms of gender, in terms of um, 
the types of the type of work people did and how it affected the political demands they have and the their political um uh, the issues they cared about and what they asked for from polit politicians so it it's mostly economic structural change then of course globalization um glo we have a very strong chapter in the book by Rafaela Danziger and Stefanie Walter on globalization and the opening of borders for goods and and people um even though we um considered of globalization rather as a catalyst of the structural changes the demographic and economic structural changes we were focusing on then on an actual separate um exogenous transformation And and so the whole conceptualization in the introduction um, uh, relies mostly on changing socio-structural groups, which are the which are then kind of the uh, the elements, uh, the socio-structural elements that are uh, mobilized and articulated in electoral politics. Mm -hmm. So you already mentioned the two big economic changes, I think, that you address in the book. On the one hand, automation, digitalization, as we would say maybe now, um, and also the globalization, economic globalization. But there's also a focus on changing family relations, right, as one other of these developments. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, yes, so we have one chapter on this by Sping Anderson in the book. Um, but I think the way in which it also um, is important in the introduction is that, and this is no surprise, of course, to people studying um, political economy, is that the economic structural change from industrial to post-industrial um, economic production is very one would say gendered hmm? um, the kind of the restructuring of uh, classes um, happens uh, in, in very different ways for men and women. Um, job losses are concentrated in strongly male dominated um, sectors and industries and job growth is, uh, is, is prevailing in um, occupational categories where women are strongly represented. Also, of course, The educational revolution has completely transformed um, the uh, social realities for women in advanced um, democratic countries. And uh, all, all this has led to a new class structure, um, which we take as a kind of a, a point of departure for theorizing political demand in, um, in advanced uh, capitalist democracies. Um, And, and this is also familiar to uh, people who um, have studied comparative and, poli and, and uh, comparative political economy. Um, so the important thing was that we distinguished within the working class between a more um, male-dominated or industrial manufacturing working class and uh, a service working class, but that we also take um, uh, the educated middle class um, called sociocultural professionals as a key um, socio-structural group that is relevant for uh, for politics in in these countries, and then in addition, the, the two other groups that are most important in the conceptualization are are business, so kind of the old middle class or business interests, and uh, the petty bourgeoisie. I think one of the the main points of the introduction really is that in order to understand economic and social policy in the post-industrial societies, we need to distinguish two dimensions. One dimension really is the um, is market involvement of the state, is redistribution, is how much to spend, if you want to say it that way. And but then you argue there's a second dimension that's more focusing on how to spend it, how social and economic policies are constructed, where you focus on a distinction between consumption and investment spending. And maybe you can tell me a little more about this. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yes. So um, our model, the, the model that we uh, develop, which is more of a framework than an actual uh, 
um, theory, I would say, um, is and that we called um, a model of constrained partisanship. These constraints uh, consist in two uh, in in two aspects. One of them is kind of the uh, the institutional legacies that governments encounter when they have to make policy decisions. Um, and the other constraint is the demand side of electoral politics, kind of the preferences that are articulated in society. Um, in order to conceptualize these two constraints, we developed this idea of a two-dimensional space in, in both arenas. And the one you mentioned now refers mostly to this institutional um, conceptualization. So um, how do we characterize the legacies, the institutional legacies that governments um, start from or have to deal with when uh, addressing policy challenges. And there we argue indeed, as you say, that there are two dimensions. Um, one of them is the, one of them denotes kind of the, the extent of state intervention, strong state intervention, weak state intervention, um, which also uh, an important I mean, um, aspect of it is, the, is just also state capacity, um, how much resources uh, governments can uh, expect to extract in order to provide um, distributive policies. And the other dimension we conceptualized as um, investment consumption. And that means that governments have to decide whether they allocate resources rather to investive policies, meaning that they spend today, they restrict consumption spending today in order to achieve a yield or a return in the future on productivity, on uh, human capital, on employability, etc., or whether they um, um, provide uh, money or they allocate money to policies which have an immediate um, distributive effect in the present uh, in terms of protecting or income replacement, etc., which we called consumption. And the, the terminology of investment consumption has been criticized uh, quite a lot and also, I think, on, on uh, sensible and valid grounds uh, in the sense that um, consumption has kind of a, um, may have kind of a negative connotation um, but that was not at all the the, the intention in the beginning. Uh, the the idea was really to um, uh, to refer to this temporal dimension of uh, spending or of achieving the distributive effect of the policies in the immediate um, in in the immediate or to um, uh, expect a return in the future. Because this temporality then also um, contributes to explaining which groups um, are more likely to support one or the other form of uh, public spending. And I think this, this um, conceptualization of investment versus consumption, as opposed to the second dimension of strong versus weak uh, state intervention, that was probably, I would say, the main um, idea or innovation in the uh, chapter. And what we did then was to relate this investment consumption policy demand or policy legacy dimension to uh, kind of the political preference space, which we had conceptualized as two-dimensional um, before. I mean, the, if you are familiar with the Creasy or Kitchell work, you know that the, the, the two-dimensional policy space is not it's not an invention of 2015 in this book, but it's something that had been developed way before. But we then try to establish the links between this preference space of, um, of state versus market preferences and then second dimension universalism particularism and kind of map this preference space to the policy option space of uh, strong weak state intervention and investment consumption in order to conceptualize the types of coalitions that governments can try to build and the types of reform options that they can that they can pursue with different coalitions. Mm -hmm. So you've already mentioned the uh, these types of uh, socioeconomic groups before that you used to cluster then uh, the demand side space so to say which groups want what from the state and then you map this onto these these two dimensions of um of first of all of uh, more state intervention and then the second of investment versus consumption and maybe you can tell me again how this mapping exactly works what groups 
want what? And then also maybe mention a couple of concrete policies that are associated with these investment versus consumption policies. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay. So, um, as I said, we in, in the book, we first developed this, this first type of constraint that we call supply-side constraint, which is the institutional legacies, meaning that some countries start from a legacy of strong or weak state intervention, and some start from a legacy of a stronger uh, investment consumption or an Yeah, a, a ratio more fa more uh, tending towards investment or more tending towards consumption. And then um, on the other hand, and not independent from it, of course, because the institutional legacy contributes to structuring the sociostructural demand in quite interesting ways, actually, mainly through the size of different uh, groups or electoral potentials that you then obtain. But then in the preference space, so we try to Uh, we tried to locate these different um, classes or, or main uh, sociostructural groups that I mentioned before. And um, the main thing that we argue there, based mainly on, on literature that had been developed uh, or on studies that have been developed before and, and that have been refined um, also since, is that, uh, that both working class um, citizens as well as sociocultural specialists tend to support um, stronger state intervention than business and petty bourgeoisie. So on the horizontal dimension, you have kind of this uh, working class sociocultural uh, horizontal dimension, I mean strong versus weak uh, state intervention. You have this this potential alliance between sociocultural professionals and uh, working class citizens um, for a, a variety of reasons, right? Uh, um, one reason being, of course, income related, um, just the, 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 the amount and need for um, public uh, redistribution that is needed in these classes. But then also, of course, And this has been developed in, in, in many other studies, of course. Um, uh, other reasons, both um, self-interested ones, I mean, sociocultural professionals often work in, in public or parapublic or semi-public um, industries and also value-related reasons, um, as opposed to business and small business owners. Um, the more complex um, theor theorization of preferences, if you want, was on the investment consumption um, a dimension. And there, um, I think there is an empirical side to it and there is an, a, a theoretical side to it. Empirically, we already saw, and since then, quite a, a lot of evidence um, has uh, contributed to showing that um, middle class or more uh, upper social classes, both socio-cultural um, specialists as well as uh, business and, and other middle class um, uh, citizens are more favorable towards social investment or investment generally um, than um, working class and petty bourgeoisie um, citizens. Um, And uh, yes, the, and and uh, especially working class citizens are tend to be more favorable towards consumption than towards investment. Um, empirically, I would say this is quite robust by now. It was a bit less robust in 2015, actually. We had some tentative evidence. Um, since then, a lot of people, uh, Kitschelt himself, um, uh, my team as well, uh, also Marius Busemeyer, Jane Gingrich, a lot of people have contributed to show that this holds. Um, I think what is still is a research question um, is why exactly that is the case. Um, in the book that we um, discuss right now, we established this connection between um, more highly educated classes and uh, their, their stronger affinity towards investment, um, mostly based on this temporal distinction between investment and consumption. Um, so on the one hand, they have the kind of the resources to for patients, if you want, um, to kind of delay returns in the future. And on the other hand, we know that their stronger universalistic values um, should support the more um, 
the more diffuse and the less predictable distributive effects of investment. So to give an example, if you invest in, in good schools, uh, primary schools or even early childcare uh, education, um, you invest a lot of money um, if, if, you, if you go for quality, you invest a lot of money now. And it's not that clear to predict who exactly is going to benefit in what way from this investment in the future. Which means that support for this uh, type of policy requires a sort of, um, you could say, egalitarian, universalistic uh, value to support whatever or whoever the direct beneficiaries will be. As opposed to social consumption uh, reforms where uh, usually you can calculate very clearly how exactly, whether you are going to be a beneficiary or not, what the probability is and how much money exactly you would get from a specific transfer. Um, so this was, this was the distinction that we, that we made. And that's how we argued, uh, why we, um, why we expected and also saw, uh, sociocultural professionals and middle class voters, uh, overall educated middle class voters to support investment more strongly. By now, since then, I would say um, this is one of the areas where the literature really has made progress, where we have seen that support for investment versus consumption also has a probably more narrow um, distributive um, underlying mechanisms in the sense that we know that uni um, social investment policies oftentimes have so-called Matthew effects. So they have uh, regressive dis distributive effects and they indeed tend to benefit middle-class voters more strongly than working-class voters for a, a variety of, of reasons that we could talk about. So there, there, there may be a narrower economic side to this, um, this divide. And also others have argued that it relates a lot to trust in state capacity of delivering the high-quality services. So there are, there are, um, I think there are, this debate is still a little bit open. Advances have been made. But at the time then, um, to go back to the conceptualization of uh, coalitions, we theorized um, uh, the, the positioning of groups in this two-dimensional space in a way that we still see and start to better understand now. And then, um, and then comes in political agency, right? I mean, the, um, the, the reason why we conceptualized the policy space or the, the, the preference space, not at the level of party constituencies, like left voters are here, right voters are there, green voters are over there. Um, rather, um, we conceptualized it at the level of socio-structural groups is that then that the, the mobilization of these groups, um, either individually or as class coalitions within specific parties, that is then the, 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 the area of, of political agency and partisan agency, which to quite some extent differs across countries. And we'll talk about uh, political parties in a, in a second. I just wanted to get back to this um, second dimension and an overlap that you already hinted at. So very often in the literature, the, um, this so-called second dimension is described as a cultural dimension with preferences about how societies should be organized. Should they be organized bottom up? or more top-down, more authoritarian, and you relate questions such as gender equality, LGBT rights, and so on, and also immigration increasingly. And so what you argue in the book is that uh, the preferences on this dimension really strongly overlap with the preferences on consumption versus investment. So social spending on, for example, pension and unemployment insurance versus education, childcare, and these more investment-oriented spendings. Can you explain that overlap a little more to me? Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, yeah, th there too, I think there is a distinction to be made between the, the, the debate we had at the time and, and where it stands now. Um, at the time, um, in terms of preferences, we indeed, uh, spoke of this, of this kind of clear distinction between economic preferences on the one hand and then, and then more cultural or value, uh, based preferences on the other hand regarding the second dimension. But already then, um, especially when I uh, wrote the chapter on 
on policy preferences together with Hans-Peter Kriesi for the volume, um, we um, did one of those many and oftentimes repeated uh, factor analyses where you uh, try to extract the relevant factors out of survey data on uh, specific policy preferences. And I think one of the most uh, kind of robust um, results that many I find across all different uh, data sources and countries is that um, there are two main factors to extract. And um, that, as you just said, um, these policies related to gender equality, cultural liberalism, increasingly then also migration, uh, in some countries, European integration, even though that was always a, a hybrid issue between economic and cultural, uh, together, jointly, um, it did load on the second, uh, I call it now the second dimension. Um, which led a lot of authors, uh, certainly Hans-Peter Kriesi, to interpret it as the cultural dimension. Um, but when we wrote the chapter, we realized that certain social policy um, attitudes concerning, for instance, um, deservingness, uh, whether people deserve the social benefits that they receive or not, whether they should be sanctioned for um, laziness or for abusing of social policy, whether immigrants should also have the right to um, to these uh, policies, and to some extent even uh, more narrow social policies such as uh, early childcare policies or parental leave policies, they also tended to load on the second dimension even though they are obviously uh, very clearly distributive uh, policies. Um, and this observation, I think, started certainly for me and for many others as well to uh, really start thinking of these two dimensions that we clearly still see not so neatly distinguished between economic and cultural, but to think of both of these dimensions as being or involving both economic and cultural um, motivations of people's preferences over them. Um, I think the first step was to say that the second dimension, and we say that in the chapter in the volume, Hans-Peter and I, um, and we had quite long discussions and, and, and some uh, disagreements along the way over this, uh, we agreed on saying, well, the second dimension has become blurred because between economic and, and cultural. Um, but you could say exactly the same thing about the so-called economic dimension. I mean, also the, the extent to which people support big or small government has, and I think today there is no surprise in saying that, right? It, it has become as much a cultural issue as it is an economic issue. Um, and, and the same goes for, um, for, for the issues loading on the second dimension. So I think what, what, what I really realized in working on the volume we discuss now is that, um, the, the distinction between, um, or, for, for me, actually, the aha moment, because the fact that the second dimension, the cultural dimension was also relevant for social policy, I had understood before while writing the PhD on pension politics, pension, which is kind of the classical distributive policy. But even there, I saw that cultural or second dimension concerns of, of gender equality, universalism, etc. mattered very much there as well. But for me, the aha moment in writing this book was that that also the, the first dimension was just as blurred as the second dimension. And I have actually then continued working uh, on these issues after uh, the book. And uh, for instance, uh, currently now I am uh, working a lot with public opinion data collected in the framework of an ERC project on welfare state preferences and, and priorities of different welfare state policies. And one of the main findings that we have uh, so far very robustly across all the countries that we look at is that um, this second dimension, the second kind of value dimension, if you want, even if you even if you operationalize this dimension by purely societal issues, right, minority rights, uh, gender equality, really cultural liberalism um, attitudes, these uh, um, it, the, the positioning on this uh, dimension very clearly predicts attitudes towards and priorities towards social policies um, 
especially towards investment and consumption, and also, of course, uh, towards welfare uh, chauvinism. So the treatment of immigrants in the in social policy—that's um, not not very surprising, but but still uh, very important to mention. But I think the investment consumption link is more important. Um, I mean, I can go on on the mechanism that links them, but I think that the, the main three mechanisms that are now in the in the foreground in explaining why um, why it might be uh, are uh, that uh, the first one, which really links the value dimension, the universalist value dimension to investment, is the the one I mentioned before, kind of the indeterminate egalitarian um, distributive effects of investment. And their beneficial effect, especially for groups uh, uh, that were not at the focus, at the center focus of the old industrial welfare state, uh, women and children, especially. Uh, the second uh, main explanation um, is is linked to political trust, trust in the political system to de de deliver the effects. That is the Garitzmann, Busemeyer, Neimann's explanation which uh, I am still not sure uh, to what extent it is a kind of a composition effect, but I think they have uh, strong evidence to show that trust does indeed matter. And of course, state capacity does matter to deliver services. And the third, uh, the third explanation that we are uh, with my team now currently working on is again a more um, rational choice or interest-based explanation, um, not only having to do with the Matthew effect of uh, social investment, um, because there we see that uh, it doesn't explain everything. So even people who are not uh, clearly not going to benefit from social investment, if they have universalistic values supported more strongly, but it also has to do with um, your um, your estimation of your economic opportunities. If you think that you will um, do well in the labor market or that, or that you are equipped to do well in the labor market and you and your children, then you are more willing to invest now in this uh, human capital and human capacity uh, formation uh, to then get a return in the future than if you are not. And I think this opportunity it's kind of an economic explanation, but it's opportunity, perspective-based. Um, this one, um, I think, carries a lot of explanatory power in linking the in linking the groups that are kind of the the champions of universalism and the, and and those supporting social investment. You already hinted at it that in your most recent research, and you have a, an ESC project in it, you really reconceptualize social policy preferences within the space that we just talked about through the idea of welfare priorities. Can you explain a little more to me what the idea behind that is? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So, um, so different from some of the co-authors of the book that we talked about, uh, my um, I always came from the social policy uh, research to this uh, work because the work, the ambition of the work, of course, is, is much larger. It's about political economy overall. It's about electoral politics, which I have always worked on. But my main uh, focus um, has always been on, on social policy and welfare states. And so for me, um, it has always been very important to understand what this reconfiguration of the electoral space implies for the welfare state. And again, um, it, it, I, I have to emphasize the fact that um, for a very long time and in much of the literature still, there is not really a connection between the study of realigning party competition and um, social policy or, or distributive politics, because the parties that are most important in this restructuring, far right and new left parties, for a long time were associated with topics and policy issues uh, that are not core to social policy. Um, and, and so I think that this uh, link has for a long time not been established. And I was always very interested in finding out where this link uh, lies. Um, now, looking at social policy preferences, and a lot of people listening uh, are certainly aware of it, of it, is that when you look at um, preferences of people, um, you see that most people support most generous social policies across the board. Mm -hmm. uh, so 
if you look at uh, policy support for, uh, for instance, cutting back education spending or cutting back pension spending, you find in all European countries, uh, 90 and and 90 percent and more of citizens rejecting cuts, both in education and uh, pensions. Um, so you could say there there is not even re really um, kind of a polarization of preferences, and so there is not really anything to to explain. I mean that was basically the starting point of of Pearson's new politics of the welfare state uh, theory to say that if you have in the end uh, an overwhelming majority of citizens agreeing on what they want from the welfare state, there is no room really for party competition on these issues. Um, I always, that's not what I saw in, in, um, in the reforms that I looked at uh, in terms of pension reform, for instance. I saw a lot of conflict also at the level of citizens, but I saw this conflict mostly in the emphasis that people uh, placed on different aspects of these reforms. So um, certain groups of citizens were willing to accept um, to accept policy reforms they were not necessarily in favor of in order to attain um, other policy goals. To give you an example, a lot of um, very controversial pension reforms in Europe uh, linked in the same reform cutbacks in overall pension levels or increases in, in retirement age with um, improvements of pensions for specific groups, such as working women, for instance, or, um, or atypical, uh, employees. Um, and, and for some citizens, um, this was, this, this package was then an acceptable deal. And for others, it was not. And whether it is an acceptable deal or not, of course, depends on the relative importance that you attribute to one or the other element. And um, and so I thought that if we had to um, really study what the realignment of electoral um, of the electoral space means for the welfare state, we really needed better data on what people care about um, about the welfare state, and that's the whole motivation of this ERC project. Um, in, in, to measure people's priorities, and we do that in different observational and experimental ways, and then to reconceptualize conflict and also partisan conflict over the welfare state in terms of priorities. And, and it's really um, quite... Um, quite amazing or it's not amazing actually sometimes it's quite depressing but it's quite um impressive to see um how strongly people disagree on where they would allocate resources um which of course matters a lot in a context where resources are perceived as being scarce you know we can debate endlessly on whether they are scarce or not and i mean the mobilization of enormous um uh, support packages for the economy that we see right now uh, reasonably uh, lets us doubt the fact that uh, fiscal resources are that scarce or cannot be expanded. But if you uh, look at people's perception, most people, two thirds at least of people across European countries, perceive fiscal constraints to be very strong. And I mean, they will uh, reasonably be much stronger in the years to come uh, after this crisis, of course. And so when people perceive fiscal um, uh, means to be very scarce, then where they prioritize the allocation of these resources, of course, becomes very important in their, um, in their political preferences and also in the support of reforms or opposition to reforms that they are going to mobilize. I feel we've established two things now. One is the socioeconomic transformations that have happened in post-industrial societies. The second is we have established a framework of how we can understand the preference space within um, this changing environment. But I feel we haven't brought them really together yet. So the question of how these transformations then have affected these changes on the, these preference, the changes in preferences on the side. Mm -hmm. Well, I think the the investment um, consumption um, dimension is um, to a large extent the product of the structural economic change. It is a dimension that is um, 
that of course you can conceptualize for any time, but that is most important in what uh, some call the knowledge economy or the the economy you currently live in, where most of uh, employment is already in in the services and and mostly high-skilled services, uh, which are strongly expanding and certainly is still growing in high-skilled services. Um, In this employment structure, um, human capital is an an enormously important resource. And social investment policies are strongly linked to the creation and mobilization of human capital, either through creating it by educational policies, early education, but all types of all stages of education or retraining um, uh, or even active labor market policies, but then also mobilization by, for instance, improving care infrastructure to allow uh, trained people to actually be active in the in the labor market. And and so I think the the investment consumption um, dimension, even though you can imagine it as being relevant in any time, um, I think its relevance is is clearly linked to the knowledge economy. Um, so you've already mentioned it that with the the book and also your current work, really there is an idea of ad- advocating this electoral turn in political economy research. And so my question would be, what what do all these changes that we've now discussed mean for established political parties? So the in quotation marks old parties, social democratic parties. Maybe we'll start with social democratic parties. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, yes. So parties, uh, I said before already that we con- we developed our theory at the level of social structure and not at the level of parties or party electorates. And that's um, because uh, this is why uh, this is where agency really comes in and um, and choice and, and political strategies, etc. Um, uh, one of the main um, arguments of the book, and it's it's one of those arguments that uh, now I'm uh, when I'm in debates about the book versus other approaches that comes up uh, most often, is that we wanted to advocate for an for for an an open conceptualization of agency. So um, in the sense that. Since we developed this uh, multidimensional space, um, the, the, the kind of coalitions that are being um, mobilized um, in, in different contexts and uh, which coalition is going to prevail over another coalition is indeterminate. It's not easily predictable. Um, what we do in the book is that we theorize the available or the feasible coalitions for different contexts, contexts that are familiar to anyone familiar with political economy, more kind of the the, the, the Nordic, the liberal, the continental, the southern uh, European models. We theorize which coalitional um, alignments may be feasible or even likely uh, given the uh, especially the size of these sociostructural groups and their mobilization and preferences. Um, so we can exclude certain coalitional options, but then still there remains a, a variety of coalitional alignments that can be um, entered by um, political parties or that can be tr- that can be forged by political parties, and that is quite open. So in that sense, it was important for us to leave room to political choice and agency in this multidimensional space so that it is not clear from the outset that um, the kind of business interests, for instance, will always prevail. Um, for it, this is one of the main debates we have within political economy, where um, you know a lot of the approaches, being the growth models approach or the varieties of capitalism approach, they always kind of theorize eventually um, uh, the, the the prevailing policy reforms and outputs will align with the dominant producer group interests. That is the key hypothesis. Um, whereas in our framework, it is possible. It is possible that uh, uh, political decisions 
which have their own political uh, rationality and are not just kind of endogenous in the economic interest landscape, that these political decisions may deviate from important um, producer group interests um, in the countries. And and I think that is... um, That's why we wanted to um, theorize about different coalitional possibilities rather than to clearly predict that in the Nordic countries, this is what's going to happen and in continental Europe, this is going to happen. But we theorize these coalitional options always around um, a core sociostructural group, which is kind of the which is the the core group that has a specific political importance in a particular institutional setting. For instance, in the Nordic countries, the Nordic countries are the ones where, because of their institutional legacies of strong public services and um, their turn towards social investment very early on, sociocultural professionals are a much um, bigger and stronger group than uh, in, in the rest of Europe, basically. And so we would theorize there the coalitional options that parties have to either forge coalitions between sociocultural professionals and working classes, uh, parts or in the entire working class, or between sociocultural professionals and business interests. And, and depending on which coalition then that uh, parties in that case um, decide to uh, lean on or to forge or to mobilize, um, reform outputs should be different. And the reverse would, for instance, be Southern Europe, where we conceptualize small business owners, petty bourgeoisie, as kind of the core constituency. It's it's really um, quite striking to see this, the difference in size, right? For instance, um, sociocultural professionals, whereas they make up a, a, around, let's say, a, a quarter of citizens, more or less, in the Nordic countries, it's it's way below ten percent in uh, in Southern European countries. So it's it just in terms of size, the the groups don't have the the same importance, and then political power, of course, is much more than just numerical size. But uh, if you then you think the coalitional options through, um, starting from this core group of the different systems. And that's kind of the space within which parties have to decide on which programmatic appeals um, they strategically choose to form coalitions. But then, and I think this is an interesting point, and this is certainly something that I will uh, talk about in this in, in, in this podcast quite a lot. The question is, you assume that the structure is fixed. You assume that the, the socioeconomic context conditions really shape the structure of the preference space. And then parties have agency in terms of forming coalitions within this space. But parties themselves cannot really affect the, the dimensions of this political space themselves, can they? Yeah, that's an interesting discussion that we are um, having now that we didn't have at the time and that the book wasn't actually written for. But I think it is a, a really fruitful um, and a, analytical way to, to think about um, now. Um, it's true that um, I think the the book... Um, prob- well, I'm I'm not even that sure yet with, uh, anymore whether it was a very deliberate choice to um, demarcate the approach from more voluntarist, issue-based, agency-oriented uh, models of party competition, but it, it's, it certainly has a strong structural um, approach to it, meaning that we think that or that we conceptualize the preferences of these groups as um not fixed, but endogenous in their structure, in their socio-structural situation and and uh, position. Um, in the sense that it did me- this means that political parties do have agency. They have agency in choosing which group they address and which groups they try to address jointly. They certainly also have agency in. Um, in, in raising or, or increasing or decreasing the saliency of certain issues or certain dimensions. But parties in our approach, they don't make pref- or they don't affect preferences. They don't, um, the people's preferences are not endogenous just in party discourse. It's not that you can just 
tell people that um, you know the, the the main problem is not migra- is not migration but it's inequality and then you know it will it will open their eyes to uh, to the fact that they actually want more redistribution rather than less migration and and it will change the electoral landscape altogether that's certainly an approach that we that we are very far away from in our approach agency relates to saliency of uh, dimensions and issues and through this saliency and through the, the, the types of appeals that parties choose, they assemble coalitions. But they assemble coalitions, as you say, of uh, voter groups that do have their identifiable uh, preferences. Yeah, we're already coming to an end. Um, there's one last question that I'm going to ask every every participant in this podcast. And this is because we are recording this, of course, in times of uh, social isolation, um, corona-mandated social isolation. And my question is going to be for everyone for reading recommendations. So people who listen to this and maybe have a, a free second um, and want to read something, there I'm going to ask for two types of recommendations. One is for a political science piece or an article or a book that you think is very interesting or uh, you want to recommend to people? And the second, then a non-academic work that you would like to recommend. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, Yes. Uh, I think, so I, I, you have told me about this before because it takes some time to think about options. And um, I uh, had some hesitation on what to recommend, but for the academic book, I think I would recommend and... uh, I do so because I, I went back to it now in preparing also this uh, this um, discussion we had um, today. Uh, I would recommend to look into the uh, predecessor volume of the one we discuss uh, here, the, the continuity and change in contemporary capitalism of 99. Um, it's really um, very, very impressive to see um, how the agenda of uh, how the research agenda of our very accelerated and uh, very, um, uh, how would I say, very productive, but very accelerated academic production on all these topics that we have right now um, already is foreseeable uh, there. Um, and I think it's, it's especially helpful because 19, it, it was written in the 90s, Uh, the main empirical focus, of course, was on the 80s and 90s, and then it it came out in 99. And um, you have chapters by Esping Anderson on the on the changing social structure, or the chapter by Hans Peter Kriesi on the new social movements uh, of the uh, of the left uh, in the 80s, and then the counter reaction of the new right movement in the 90s. And I think it's very very helpful to read. Um, these accounts in order to see that when you do and and I'll end uh, academically I'll end on this um, little ad for a structuralist perspective if you the, the the great beauty of looking at social structure is that it is the, the one way that allows us social scientists to know what is going to uh, come on our research agendas and what lies ahead in, in, in one or two decades, because social structure changes very slowly. And it is, um, you, you can really read, if you can read social structure, um, you are, uh, you know, you were not at all surprised by, by, by Brexit or, I mean, by the decision, yes, but not by the, by the potential of it happening um, uh, and how it would affect Uh, the realignment of politics in in Western Europe. So I, I would advocate for a for a structuralist approach that goes for a lot of political sociology and sociology uh, to court. But I think the 99 volume is a really good um, reminder of that. And then non-academically, I um, uh, will recommend a book by Christoph Ransmeier, um, uh, We, who writes in German, but is translated to English as well. Um, the, the book I would recommend is the Atlas eines ängstlichen Mannes. It's translated into Atlas of an Anxious Man. Um, and it's a, uh, Christoph Ransmeier has traveled the entire world and has written uh, 70 short uh, essays on what he saw in these different places in the world. And it's actually the perfect book 
uh, to read now being confined at home. Uh, not only because it takes you to all these places, but uh, quite paradoxically, uh, because it shows you that, you know, wherever he was, he could be on the top of a mountain in the Himalaya or in a, um, or, or then in his hometown village in Austria. Um, the, the, he always saw the, um, the, the same, um, he always had this, uh, the sensitivity for uh, looking at small things and then seeing the big picture in them. And so it, it paradoxically, even though it's a book about traveling the whole, the whole world, it actually shows you, you, you don't have to travel the whole world to understand what it's essential about being um, alive and, uh, and observing the world and thinking about uh, the world. And it's a very, very good book um, that uh, I would recommend to everybody. Celia, thank you so much. Really, thanks for the very interesting conversation. Thank you, everyone, for listening, and I hope you enjoyed the podcast.